Mm-hmm. All right. Well, today, all of us that are staying in here, the children are leaving, I think, with Angie and Katina and Chris. The rest of us are going to open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. It's Peter's first letter. It's called the Epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4. And today we're going to keep our discussion going, uh, things pertaining to the close of the age. If you were here last week, you may recognize those words, close or end of the age. We found that in the text that we examined last week from Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. The parable we were discussing last week was the parable of the dragnet. Here's where we found in the parable these words. Again, Jesus speaking to the people and disciples. He said, the kingdom of heaven. Is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Then verse 49, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We finished three, two different weeks of talking about three parables. The first two was the hidden treasure, then the costly pearl. Those things gave us information pertaining to the value of the kingdom. What is the value of the kingdom? It is priceless. It is incalculable. But also, as we looked into those parables, we eventually landed in the dragnet, which gave us a considerably different outlook of something pertaining to the kingdom and was talking about judgment. And we learn how judgment is certainly imminent. It is forthcoming. It is looming. Judgment is also certain, and it is final. We learn that no one knows the day, the hour, the time. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 tells us all that. But the looming, forthcoming judgment is certain. It shall be upon us. And it will be a day of separation of the good and the evil between the righteous and those who are bad. A separation will occur, and the judgment will be in due time. So then, in continuing the discussion of the close of the age, we turn today to 1 Peter chapter 4 to find the words about how to be living in view of the end, or in view of the end of the close of the age. We're going to find, as we get into this text today, it seems almost rather simple, only five verses in length, but it's a timeless passage. A timeless passage that Peter probably wrote back in around A.D. 64 or A.D. 65 to a group of Christians that had a lot of uncertainty at that time because they were facing severe persecution. They were facing some death, either among themselves, facing persecution that would be imminent for them at that moment in time, or someone they dearly loved. So they were fearful, and, and it was a time of great tragedy. And the Roman Emperor Nero was the one who was putting all this upon the Christians, the believers, the followers of Christ. Nero enjoyed torturing them Christians because he was trying to find favor with the Roman citizens who he had blamed the Christians upon setting a fire in Rome. And then he tortured the Christians, found favor to people. It's a horrible, tragic time. So Peter's writing this letter to help encourage them and for them to remain steadfast in Christ, and also tells them to be encouraged because the imminent day of Christ's return will soon be coming. Stand with me this morning as we do so to honor the reading of the word. 
Again, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, it's not lengthy. It's verses 7 through 11. Peter's writing to the people, and he says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father. Lord, we thank you for this passage today that we are have read. And Lord, today we turn our attention to continuing discussion of things pertaining to this close or end of age. Today, Lord, our objective, our goal is for you to give us insight, for you to give us some wisdom of how we should be living in sight or in view of the end. So Lord, we invite your spirit to lead and direct us here today to receive the wisdom we need and the actions that we should be doing in this time between now and the end. So, Lord, we thank you for what we will learn here today and how we can apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you're being seated, note how Peter begins this segment of the letter that we begin to dissect. I mean, he, he grabs, he starts with something that just immediately may grab your attention. He says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Now that just seems to grab your attention. Now, depending on which translation you may prefer and the one that you may be reading the most, it may vary depending upon its wording. The New American Standard says the end of all things is near, where the New Living Translation says the end of all things is coming soon. But whatever translation you may prefer, the wording suggests basically the same thing, that the end, the close of the age, is at or short distance away, that it is a short time away in the future, or that it is almost, like an almost here. So having heard that and having seen how Peter starts this and our continuing discussion of things pertaining to the end of the age, the question really becomes this. Do you think about the end of things being a short time away very often? Do you think about it very often? I mean, some people don't think about it at all. But some people, they're consumed by these things that's happening either in current day that they seem to think are indicative of the fact that we're progressing in time closer and closer and closer to the end of age. So whether we answered the question that's before us, do we think about it often as affirmative or maybe negative? No, we don't. Recognize this, that however we learn that time is short in whatever situation it is, do we know that when time is short, two other guys neglected operating principles suddenly seem to just kick in? That is urgency and simplicity. When you really think about it, you understand that things get really important when you know you have short time. And when, when, when people discover they have very little time left to live, the relationships 
seem to mend. I mean, if they've had a sour relationship, they may go about mending that relationship. When people know they have very short time to live, family becomes front and center. It becomes urgent. Schedules are rearranged so you can spend time with family. Years ago, my father was diagnosed with cancer. In fact, it was in January 2001. My father, we learned as a family that he had cancers in stage four, as Angie mentioned earlier with her friend. It's very unfortunate to find that you have stage four cancer because your prognosis and your time probably is very short. And as we learned that, I was living in Mississippi at the time, and our, our family basically stopped everything that we were doing. When we knew the time was short, with my dad, spending time with him became very important. And again, it became very urgent. There was an urgency about it, and there's simplicity. So every weekend while we're living in Mississippi throughout the month of October and November, we would just stop any activity that was planned for the weekend and leave on a Friday afternoon and drive eight and a half hours north from Mississippi to Hazleton just to be there the entire weekend with dad as we knew his time was short. But even things got canceled. My kids were big in soccer. Soccer wasn't important anymore. I loved to hunt. I had a hunting trip that I had already arranged during that time frame to go to South Dakota to hunt mule deer. I canceled it. It wasn't important any longer. Anything that was urgent, anything that was a priority, was spending time with Dad because I knew his time was short. So when we know that time is short about a certain situation in life, things become different. Priorities change. Urgency and simplicity begins to set in. Take another example, for instance. Whenever you learn or know that a tornado, a, a great storm is headed your way, and you learn that time is short before the tornado gets there. It occurred years ago in Evansville, about the same time, actually, many years ago. And it occurred in Hazleton and Petersburg many years ago. But when people learn the tornado is headed towards them, we don't find them out there firing up the barbecue, playing some games, eating and relaxing. What do you find them doing? They know time is short. They got a pine cover and they do it pretty quickly. When time is short in any situation, these things seem to kick in. A sense of urgency and keeping things simple. It even shows that sometimes when people find out that their time is short, they will do things that maybe they'd never had a chance to do before. My cousin Kyla and her husband Kelly, Kelly learned he had stage four cancer. And they were young, actually about the same age as I am. So he, he and Kelly, or Kyla and Kelly, decided that before he would pass with cancer, they would get a chance to do everything possible they ever wanted to do on their bucket list. And so they began to go places and do things. And now she treasures all those memories of the times they did things together. They did those things they dreamed of because time was short. Again, it shows us that urgency and simplicity is what seems to matter when time is short. So now Peter then is telling the people, these scattered, fearful Christians, Fearful of the persecution that seems to be happening from Nero, he's telling them that the end of all things is at hand. He's basically saying time is short. 
And, and notice how then as we come back to this, we started this message by saying, when you hear the end of all things is at hand, it just somehow seems to grab our attention. I mean, if anything I could have said, when I say the end of all things is at hand, it's just like our ears perk up. And we want to know more about it. And, and we get to the point we, we find out, well, this is an alert given to people, but not everybody pays attention to the alert of all things being at hand. But why do we have such a warning being given to people? It's because we need such a warning. Because way too many times, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anybody, way too many times we become guilty of taking the next day for granted. We think we'll have forever. We don't think the time truly is short. And we begin to live in a manner that we will have tomorrow. We take it for granted. But we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Because time is short. You remember here that Peter is phrasing this particular segment of the letter to those scared, fearful, scattered believers that the time is near. And maybe they're ready for the time to be near because they're facing some severe persecution, tortured by fire, or put into an arena to face lions and animals who have been without food for days. So maybe they're welcoming the ushering in of the end. Maybe they're saying, I'm ready for that. So he's trying to encourage these believers. At the same time, then we're trying to apply it to our lives because we become guilty of thinking that we will always have tomorrow. But we're not guaranteed that. So every day should count. And every day should not only count for families and friends and relationships, but every day should count for Jesus. To make your love of Christ known to others. Because truly the end is at hand. I mean, the Greek word here to suggest the Greek word is at hand is the word in gizzo. And the phrase really could be read that the goal of all things has come near. But here's the thing. I mean, this ain't the first time that any of us have probably heard the end of things is near or at hand. It probably ain't the first time we've heard this, which then really seems to be a bit of a rub because there's so many times we've heard it there's so many times maybe you said it that people begin to think it ain't really going to happen. People begin to mock and make fun of the fact that when they hear that the end is at hand or the end isn't near, they often ask, is it really? Because you've been saying this for 2,000 years. So how could something that was so close to happen so be so imminent, so close, so near, that you've been saying it for 2,000 years. And so people will hear it, they mock and make fun. In fact, Peter wrote a second letter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he even refers to this truth of observation. He says, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And because that is what we see, 
is because that seems to be what happens day in and day out. People become very skeptical. When you tell them the thing, the end of all things is near or at hand, or you hear about it, or you read about it, or you tell someone, they're very skeptical. Because it's been said so many times over the years. So now because they're skeptical, they live like they will always have tomorrow, that nothing at all can or will happen. And they say, hey, just relax, take it easy. I don't see the end at hand. I don't see the close of the age. However, nothing is further from the truth. The end is at hand. Chuck Swindoll states that we must observe that when Peter writes this, he is picturing Christ in heaven at the right hand of the Father, awaiting one word from the throne. One word from the throne that says, go. So when the Bible speaks of the end as near or coming quickly, it refers to the suddenness and unexpectedness of the return of Christ. That is, Christ could return at any moment. Now look, I'm not telling you it's going to happen in the next minute. I'm not telling you it's going to happen next hour, the next day, next week. I'm just saying that as we begin to observe things happening in whatever way we observe it, we should make sure we recognize that each passing day gets closer and closer to the end or closer to the age. So the question now becomes this. Are you ready? Are you ready as Chuck Swindoll when Jesus sees the word from God to go? Are you ready for when he comes to take home his church? Because we should be ready each and every day. In light of this particular any moment, the view of Christ's return in the end drawing near, Peter then tells us, because the point of the message is as we begin to realize that day is getting closer and closer, we don't know the day or time, no, but it's getting closer and closer. So Peter now is telling them and us that we need to do certain actions, certain ways in which you should be living in view of the end. So we go back to the text in its entirety. Because we've seen the end of all things is at hand, and that grabs our attention. But the very next thing that should grab our attention is the word therefore. Because now there's an abrupt shift in the text. Because Peter has said, hey, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, meaning there's actions and there's things that we must be doing or we should be doing in view of the end. So allow me then the time we have remaining to point out all the list of commands found in these verses in which we should be doing in view of the end. So the first one is this. In light of Christ's imminent return, we as believers should be exercising good judgment and be calm with the spirit of prayer. The end of verse 7. Again, therefore, be self-controlled. And sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now the text states to be self-controlled and sober as we have just read and observed. But that is essentially using good judgment. Good, sound judgment. The Expositor's Bible commentary I was reading last week refers to sober and sound judgment as simply responsibly living. To live responsibly. I mean, as the end draws closer... Are we living responsibly? Are we living with sober, sound judgment? 
in the light of his return. That's what Peter's saying we should be doing, to live responsibly, using good judgment, and to be calm with the spirit of prayer. The Expositor's Bible Commentary also said that Christians are not to give way to an eschatological frenzy, but to practice self-control and be active in prayer. We could rephrase that to say we don't need to panic. We shouldn't be panicking about anything that we learn. As time does evolve and as things do happen, we need to be recognizing that, but do not panic. Continue to be calm. Have a spirit of calmness. So I was thinking about this last week, and I was thinking, how could I use an illustration to say how we need to be calm and not panicking? And maybe it's not the best illustration, but the very first thing that popped in my mind as I was thinking about an illustration to how we should remain calm are those old T-shirts. A few people may wear them today, but the T-shirt would say, stay calm, chive on. I never understood that T-shirt. I mean, stay calm, chive on. I mean, I don't get it. I don't understand what chive on means. I would see them everywhere. And all of a sudden, there were people mocking that and making fun of that and then making new T-shirts that said, stay calm, party on, or stay calm, whatever on. But I never understood about it, but I did understand where it originated from because the original saying was to stay calm and carry on, which is exactly what we need to do. Don't panic. Stay calm and carry on. Now, I do know this, too, that if we were to dare make a shirt today and pass it out for all of us to adorn and wear together in reference to stay calm, we would have a shirt to say this. According to what Peter is telling us, our shirt would say this. Stay calm and pray on. Pray. Because the point is the secret to maintain any calmness, any balance in the midst of frantic, disarray time, the secret to keeping any calmness to that is indeed prayer. It is certainly not panic. Because when you're panicking, most likely you're not praying. You ever think about that? When you're panicking, you're probably not praying. Which means when something is alarming to you, pray. When something begins to spin out of control in life, pray. Pray. Prayer brings things back in focus. It keeps us balanced. It sharpens our awareness. It gives us some wisdom and discernment. It offers us hope and confidence. So prayer, yes, prayer. Keep calm and pray on. That's the shirt we would need to wear. Essentially, we're saying we stay self-controlled. We exercise good judgment, good sound judgment, sober and in balance with prayer. Prayer, good judgment is essential as time evolves closer to the end, as the end draws near. But that's not the only thing that Peter is telling that group of believers and we're, extra, and we're applying to our lives today. A second is this. In light of Christ's imminent return, whenever that should may be, we should have fervent love for one another. It's verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Now you see may, may see behind me how I really like the wording in the reading of the New Living Translation, because it says it this way. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. So in the New Living Translation, work with me for a while and see it and begin to look at it and notice the word continue. Continue. As in, keep on doing. And notice then, keep on doing, continue, is not just any type of love, but continue deep love. Continue on showing and giving and exercising deep love. Now, that's more than just your everyday kind of love. I mean, think about the word love. In our English language, it is abused. It is greatly misused. Because we can say we love almost anything. But that's not the type of love that he's talking about. Because we can say, I love, y'all know, Diet Mountain Dew. All right? I said it too many times. You should know it by now. I also love pizza. At the same time, I can love my wife. I do it in just about the same order. Diet Mountain Dew, pizza to wife. Just so you know. But I can also love Indiana Hoosier football, which is now ranked in the top ten. Can you believe it? You can't believe it. I can love my job. I can love each and every one of you. I don't really love shopping, but I'll go. And I just seem to love sports and hunting. So that word love in all of our lives is always greatly abused and just misused in every possible way. But now Peter is saying that we need to continue on loving deep love. Not that type of love that we may think about when we think of love, but having deep, sincere love that is intense. Just one that never grows cold. A love that you'd have for Jesus, intense, that never grows cold. I mean, in this regard, Peter is admonishing the believers to have fervent love, the love they would have for Jesus towards one another, and continue to do it throughout all the days. So the question then, as we think about love, now becomes this. Do we have that type of love for other people? I mean, it's so easy to love self. It's so easy, really, to love other family members. But do we have the love in general for people? Now, as I think about that, I look at all of you, and I think that we here at Crossroads do a great job loving people. I think we love Jesus, and we love people. But I also recognize how that is a rarity in this world today. It's rare to have that deep love that Peter is telling people we should have for each other. I think we have it, but I notice that it's rare because it just seems that love is absent in almost every facet of life anymore. When years ago, I, I was reading about a guy in Philadelphia that ran towards a police car, shooting 11 times at the policeman. I'm thinking, where's the love in that? Isn't that just full of hate? Or I could Read about a guy that's homeless in New York City with the temperature being five degrees. And he's homeless just wearing a T-shirt. And the people just walk right on by him, ignoring his need. I'm thinking, where's the love in that? We just seem to be a world absent of love anymore. 
In fact, if you ever wanted to see the extent of the lack of love and the extent of hate in this world today, Google and look up the Department of Justice statistics on hate crimes. Hate crimes, you know, those things that extreme violence given to particular set of people that may not be just like us, a, a class or set of people, they, they pick out in particular, and they give them extreme violence. It's those hate crimes that just seem to be increasing in our day and time. So I'm thinking, where is the love in all that? There's so much hate that seems to exist. There's so much division that seems to exist in our country and in our world. So where is the love? I mean, Peter's taking opportunity in his letter to tell them to be fervent in love to one another, and now we're applying it directly to our lives. To have fervent love towards each other. Now, as we hear that, also recognize that Peter adds something else at the end of that verse in verse 8. That love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I hear that and I ask myself, well, what does that mean, that love covers a multitude of sins? I mean, does that mean that love covers all of our sins? Because I love all of you a lot, so you must be sin-free. Right? If love covers a multitude of sins, all of you must be completely without sin because I love you deeply. So is that what Peter's referring to? Well, the answer is no, of course. And Proverbs 10, 12 is what he's quoting where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. This quotation actually from Proverbs 10.12 does not mean that our love covers our actions and our sinful behavior. In the proverb, the meaning is that love does not stir up or broadcast them. So the major idea really, when Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, is that love suffers in silence and bears all things which echoes some of the words that Paul had written in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's deep love as described from Paul. But basically it means that we are to have deep, honest, genuine, sincere love. And Christians then are exercising this to forgive faults they find in others because they know that they themselves have been forgiven. So Peter then is taking opportunity to direct his recipients the advice and the wisdom in Christ's imminent return to exercise good judgment, to be calm in the spirit of prayer, to have fervent love of one another, and thirdly now, to be hospitable towards one another. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now perhaps that is completely self-explanatory to be hospitable towards one another. The idea of hospitality being that of kindness and welcoming and friendliness and warm and caring and just generous. It means what all of us should do for each other every time we're together, but not just for each other, 
but for people who are different than us, even for strangers and for visitors. I mean, the idea of hospitality seems to be inborn and inherent in Christian believers. It actually is a complement of the previous command of loving fervently. It should go hand in hand together. To be hospitable and to love fervently should go hand in hand together. But notice this, because hospitality we seem to understand. But notice that Peter adds without grumbling. Or some translations may say, be hospitable without complaining, or not to do it grudgingly. Which seems to indicate, really, by Peter adding that on to the command, it seems to indicate the difficulty of carrying out the command. I mean, early Christianity, during the time that Peter's writing this, hospitality between Christians was extremely important. A concrete expression of love in a world without our modern-day inns and hotels. When people were traveling, going from one town to the other, it was not unusual to express to a person passing through for them to stay and to welcome them, give them a place to eat, a place to sleep. That was being hospitable. But unfortunately, as we find as time has evolved, this doesn't seem to be the case as much anymore. And there are certain dangers I recognize associated with hospitality at times. But also I recognize that one of the other things associated with reason we may not be as hospitable as we used to be is that it involves money. Yeah, it shouldn't really be a concern so much because we're truly being hospitable to people without grumbling, without complaining, not doing grudgingly. Then we should be like the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 15. I mean, that parable really is not about money, but we do see how the Samaritan took care of the person who needed help. Going the extra mile, finding him a place to stay. So that was certainly being hospitable. But as we move forward today, that doesn't seem to be the case so much anymore. So Peter, maybe even in that day and time, was telling them, as he seemed maybe it wasn't like it used to be even then, to be hospitable without grumbling. And he applies it to all of us then also today that as the time evolves, as time comes closer to the end, we've got to remember to continue to be hospitable towards each other. And then finally he gives the fourth, which says to keep serving one another. Basically it's verse 10. As each had received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. I mean, note here at the end that Peter connects our serving to one another with the spiritual gifts. Each of us have received some type of gift spiritually. And he's saying, don't keep that to yourself. Don't hoard that alone for self-expression, but to use it to serve one another. Of course, Paul adds a lot more about spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. But Peter makes a particular point. The point being that while we should not keep our gift that received from each other, but to exercise it for the benefit of each other. And certainly for Christ, for Christ to get the glory. So I recognized over the years that some people don't have any idea what their spiritual gift may be. Well, there is on the internet a spiritual gift assessment that you can take to find out what it is. 
And you may find out that your gift is something you didn't even know you had. But as you find out whatever spiritual gift that you have, use it accordingly, not for your own glory, but to love others and certainly give the glory to Christ. Because you may find your gift may be something that you just do in everyday life. It could be organization skills. It could be administration. It could be music. It could be volunteering in whatever capacity, helping someone. But we're not to live as strangers. We're to live hospitably, helping one another, gladly serving each other with whatever gift that we receive, to whatever it may be. Warren Worsby offers this perspective. He said, Christian love must result in service. Each Christian has at least one spiritual gift that he must use to the glory of God and the building up of the church. We are stewards. God has entrusted these gifts to us that we might use them for the good of this church. He even gives us the spiritual ability to develop our gifts and be faithful servants of the church. Peter is simply saying this. As you receive your gift and you know what it is, don't keep it to self. He admonishes those believers. He's telling us today to minister to one another with Christ-like service, with love, with gratitude, and give Christ the glory. So how should we be living as the end draws near? Or how should we be living in view of the end? Peter makes it obvious for us. He says to be sober, to be watchful in prayer, to have fervent love of each other, he says to be hospitable to one another. And he finally, he says to minister and serve one another with our gifts. As we mentioned before, even earlier in this message, we do not know the day, the time, the hour in which the return may be. But Peter then, as he outlines these things, does give us some things of consideration in which ways that we should be living. As the end does draw near and becomes closer, there are ways in which we should be living. Today, we get the guideline to receive the wisdom of how to live in view of the end. Father, Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you for this time we have together to receive what Peter is trying to tell us and pertaining to the way we should be living. I pray that we're right now for each other. I pray that we would all today, Lord, heed these words that would move us, Lord, to make sure we're living with love towards one another, serving one another, without grumbling, Lord, without prejudice. I pray, Lord, for you to lead and to guide and we just follow you, give you the glory, and be thankful that we have this day. Let us also recognize that, yes, each passing day, the end does come closer. We do not know the day or the time, although we do recognize there's a certain style in which we should be living. And today, we aim to please you. We place these things in our lives to start practicing today. So thank you, Lord, for the message as it tells us what we need to do in view of the end and how to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.